Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. And I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, February 16th, 2024. We've got a beautiful day today. It'll reach the low 40s, breezy in the morning, otherwise sunshine all day. Tonight, it becomes cloudy with a passing flurry late, and the lows will dip down into the low 20s. A real mixed bag over the weekend with a bit of snow and rain on Saturday, but Sunday, the sun comes back out and it will be breezy. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing of the numbers game, we have numbers 7, 1, 4, and 4. The evening drawing that day, numbers were 9, 4, 2, and 4. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 1, 16, 18, 21, and 26. For the Powerball drawing on Wednesday, we have numbers 1, 4, 45, 47, 67, and the extra ball of 18. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawing, we have numbers 1, 3, 19, 25, 58, and the extra ball of number 20. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, drive Through Soup Lunch, a Hit at Sandwich Church, by Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Sandwich. As cars lined up on Wednesday at First Church Sandwich, volunteer Diane Ranny carefully hustled up and down the long, ice-covered driveway, delivering warmth to both the spirit and the body. Since about 2015, the church at 136 Main Street has held winter soup lunch from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Wednesday between January 10th and February 28th, said volunteer Chris Ranny, Diane's husband. Anyone is welcome to either drive through and pick up their soup or sit down and eat at dress tables inside the church, he said. This helps the church show how much love it has for the wider community, said the Reverend Tina Walker Morin, church pastor. We want to share the love through food. If supplies run low, volunteers will hand out frozen soups. The soup may be hot, it may be not, but either way they get to take it home, said Diane Ranny, who greets each vehicle with a menu and a wide welcoming smile. Last week, we had over 40 people come inside to eat soup, and we helped 140 families that drove through, said Chris Ranny. The free Wednesday soup lunch and sandwich is one of at least a handful of winter community luncheons offered on Cape Cod, including the soup kitchen in Provincetown. Soup for a family. When Liz DePasqua of Sandwich pulled her car into the drive through line, she handed Diane Ranny a cash donation and ordered enough soup for her immediate family and some for her parents. Her children, she said, attend First Church's Joyful Noise Preschool, and she wants to support the church. Sometimes we'll go inside and eat soup along with community members, said DePasqua. The convenience of the drive through said DePasqua, who is pregnant and current mother to four children, also doesn't hurt. The soups are so delicious, she said. This is a great community event. How volunteers stay ahead of the crowd. 
Volunteers, such as Michael Potty, arrive at the church around 10 a.m. to cook and to package soup in microwave-safe containers. About 8 to 10 volunteers join him in the church basement each week. On Wednesday, Potty was watching his apple butternut squash bisque simmer. Most of the soups, which include Italian wedding, chicken noodle, tomato bisque, lemon chicken orzo, and vegetarian chili, are cooked and donated by fellow parishioners, said Potty. The soup I made today is the same soup I make for the church fair every November, said Potty. I make 50 pints and I sell out every year. Local businesses like Loadoro Italian Market also take part each year by donating soup and bread, said Chris Ranny. Sweet treats are also homemade, and Potty was quick to mention his specialty almond cakes, which were served along with soup on Wednesday. Veterans groups come to eat, also people from capabilities, and school children. I love the camaraderie, said Potty, a retired chemical engineer. How did winter soup lunch begin? Wally and Wendy King came up with winter soup lunch and ran the operation for five years. The couple hoped winter soup lunch could help parishioners socialize on a cold winter's day, said Chris Ranney, who took over the task in 2019. A lot of our parishioners are single-person households, and this gave them a chance to hang out with friends, Ranny said. For Nancy Crossman of Sandwich, the soup lunch has become a weekly must-do. We usually go inside to eat, and it's a way to catch up with people, said Crossman. Beth Cummings of Forestdale, who accompanied Crossman on Wednesday, said the soup lunch is her way to get out into town. We go in a gab, said Cummings. I get to see what's happening around town. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Chris Ranney said the inside luncheons were shut down and the lunch became drive through only. The volunteer crew here has been doing this for a long time, said Chris Ranney. It fills all of us up to do this work. It's heartwarming. We aren't doing this for the money. It's frigid during most winter soup lunch events, but Diane Ranney loves to bundle up and spend time with the public. Throughout the years, she's also been able to help people who are food and shelter insecure, she said. One woman asked if she could take another soup, and I told her she could have as many as she needed, she said. She gave a donation, and that was amazing, but we aren't doing this for the money. Walker Morin agreed, saying it's emotionally rewarding to be helping the wider community. This is how we live our faith and share and care for each other, she said. Yarmouth Woman Dies in Windrift Motel Fire by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. Authorities answering a medical alert activation Tuesday night said a Yarmouth woman died in a fire started by a cigarette at the Windrift Motel in West Yarmouth. The fire had burned itself out by the time the Yarmouth Fire Department arrived and discovered the woman's body around 10 p.m. Officials said the woman's exact cause of death will be determined in the coming weeks by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Yarmouth Fire Chief Enrique Arescu said the exact cause of the medical alert remains unclear. When we got there, it was obvious that she had passed, Arescu said. Originally, we had made an attempt to respond with life-saving techniques once we saw her inside, but then it was determined that there were obvious signs of death. The woman, who officials said was in her 60s, had limited mobility and was the sole occupant of the apartment. Authorities are not releasing her name at this time, but said her family had been notified by Wednesday morning. 
RSQ said the fire, deemed accidental, was contained to the woman's single unit. No residents were displaced. In a release issued by the state fire marshal's office, RSQ warned of the dangers connected to smoking. First and foremost, I want to express our heartfelt condolences to the victim's family, said RSQ. I also want to remind everyone in our community that smoking is the leading cause of fire deaths in Massachusetts and the nation. Older adults are especially at risk. If you or a loved one smoke, please use a heavy ashtray on a sturdy surface and be sure to put it out all the way every time. In the same release, State Fire Marshal John M. Devine said in the past five years, about 45 people in Massachusetts have died in fires tied to smoking. More than half of them were people over 65, he said. There is no truly safe way to smoke, but if you must do it, then please don't smoke when you're in bed, drowsy, or impaired. It's just too dangerous. Court date set in alleged attempted drowning by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. A March 20th pretrial hearing is scheduled in Barnstable Juvenile Court in the case of a white 14-year-old Chatham boy who has been charged with the attempted murder of a black teen at Goose Pond in Chatham, according to court records. John P. Sheeran was indicted by a Barnstable County grand jury August 31st on felony charges of attempted murder and assault with a dangerous weapon. He was released into the custody of his father on September 11th by a judge in Barnstable County Superior Court, following a highly publicized bail review hearing where nearly 50 members of the public showed up in support of the alleged victim. A spokeswoman to the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office said the bail review hearing was held in Superior Court because Sheeran was indicted as a youthful offender after being held without bail following an August 31st dangerousness hearing. The Times does not typically publish the names of juveniles accused of a crime, but the case is public due to the severity of the charges. The case will remain public based on Sharon's status as a youthful offender and will be tried in juvenile court, the spokeswoman said. Outline of the Allegations In what was deemed a racially motivated incident by Cape and Islands District Attorney Robert Galabois, Sharon is alleged to have repeatedly pushed the black teen underwater while swimming at Goose Pond on July 19th, calling him racial slurs and throwing stones at him. Another boy is accused of harassing the black teen as well. The name of the other boy, who is white, was redacted from court documents reviewed by the Times. He is being charged as a juvenile. After the black teen began to yell for help, a person on the beach intervened and helped the teen back to shore, according to a police report. Kevin Reddington, Sheeran's attorney, could not be reached for comment, but told the Times in September the three boys were all friends. He described the incident as horseplay that was taken to the next level. State gas prices averaged $3.11 per gallon this week by Denise Coffey and Ozu Terzuglu of the USA Today Network. State gas prices rose for the second consecutive week and reached an average of $3.11 per gallon of regular fuel on Monday, up from last week's price of $3.10 per gallon, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The average fuel price in-state has risen about $0.04 cents since last month. According to the EIA, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as $3.07 on January 29th, 
and as high as $3.76 on August 7th. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 7% higher at $3.34 per gallon. Gas stations along Main Street in Bourne rose $0.06 cents from last week, according to the crowdsourced data collector GasBuddy. Bay Village, Cape Cod Gas, Sitgo, and Super Petroleum offered gas at $2.99 per gallon for regular gas. Mobile on Head of the Bay Road rose from $3.09 to $3.13 per gallon. But over the bridge, the price at Mobile on MacArthur Boulevard rose $0.10 cents from $3.19 to $3.29 a gallon. In Falmouth, prices ranged from $3.05 per gallon at Speedway on Sandwich Road to $3.15 at Cumberland Farms on T-Ticket Highway. In Barnstable, the cheapest gas was again reserved for BJ's members with prices at $3.03, an uptick of $0.06 cents from last week. Stop and Shop on West Main Street offered regular gas for $3.07. Customers who use stop-and-shop cards to buy groceries can accrue points off on gasoline. Hefty grocery bills that contain gas point items can lower the cost. North Street Automotive sold gas for $3.09, and Cumberland Farms on Barnstable Road sold gas for $3.13 per gallon. Prices in Dennis ranged from $3.09 to $3.35. Last week's range was $3.04 to $3.35 at three gas stations on the east-west Dennis Road. Prices in Orleans rose $0.02 at Mobile to $3.47 per gallon, $0.04 at Mobile at $3.49, but stayed the same for Sunoco at $3.59 and Sitgo at $3.69. At the tip of the Cape, Cumberland Farms and Gulf in Provincetown had no recent listings for gasoline prices. Two weeks ago, Cumberland Farms on Shank Painter Road offered regular gas at $3.59 a gallon. The gas station information and gas prices on GasBuddy are primarily entered by drivers. The crowdsourced information for specific gas stations can range from minutes to days old. The average gas price in the U.S. last week was $3.19 a gallon, making prices in the state about 2.5% lower than the nation's average. The average national gas price is up from last week's average of $3.14 per gallon. Bust of Douglas Unveiled in State House by Kinga Barandi of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Dateline, Boston. His words rang through the Massachusetts Senate chamber in 1894 and then graced one of its walls, where they were etched permanently in place and in memory. Wednesday, lawmakers installed a sculpture of American writer, Orate orator and abolitionist Frederick Douglass in a place of honor, a niche adjacent to the quote taken from that long ago speech. Truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. The sculpture of Douglass, who lived part of his life in New Bedford and Lynn after escaping slavery in Maryland, is the first bust depicting a person of color in a permanent place in the state house and the first added to the Senate chamber in more than 125 years. Today, Frederick Douglass takes his long overdue place among our nation's founding fathers in the Senate chamber, where he will inspire generations of Massachusetts lawmakers to lead as he did, with truth, justice, liberty, and humanity, said Senate President Karen E. Spilka, Democrat from Ashland who spearheaded the drive to diversify the figures represented in the State House, according to a press release. Attending the unveiling were several descendants of Douglas. 
Representation is powerful. Anyone should be able to walk into our chamber and see themselves contributing to our dialogue as a commonwealth. And with this historic unveiling, we take an important step toward listening to and uplifting more voices in our commonwealth, Spilka said. Few people of color are represented in the artwork on permanent display in the State House. Subjects are chosen for their elected, military, and civic service. Douglas fits in the latter category, according to Susan Greendike LeChevre, the Art Collections Manager for the Massachusetts Art Commission. This is a wonderful way to honor him and to showcase his countless and important contributions to the formation of Massachusetts, she said. The bust depicts an older version of the legendary abolitionist and is molded from another sculpture created by Lloyd Lilly, a famed Boston-based artist who also sculpted likenesses of John Adams, Abigail and John Quincy Adams, and Booker T. Washington. Lilly died in 2020. My family is incredibly humbled to have our great ancestor honored in this way, said Kenneth B. Morris, Jr., Douglas's great-great-great-grandson, and president and co-founder of the nonprofit Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. From New Bedford to Nantucket to Lynn, and many cities and towns in between, Massachusetts is where Frederick Douglass found freedom, raised his young family, and began to realize the power of his story and his voice, said Morris. We hope that this bust, displayed in the Senate chamber, together with Douglass's words, will inspire all who are united in the quest for social justice liberty, and equality. Massachusetts was home to many of supporters of Douglas's fight for freedom, and where his sons, Charles Redmond Douglas and Lewis Henry Douglas, joined the Massachusetts 54th Infantry Regiment during the Civil War. A different bust of Douglas, on loan from the Museum of African American History in Nantucket, was on display in the chamber prior to the chamber's $22 million-plus renovation which was completed in 2019. Massachusetts become a global leader in AI by Sam Drysdale of the Statehouse News Service. Governor Maura Healey signed an executive order Wednesday to create a task force meant to study artificial intelligence and to advise her administration on the state's role in implementing and encouraging private sector use of the new technology. The Artificial Intelligence Strategic Task Force will make recommendations on how the state can support businesses with AI adoption and roll out its use in government. Artificial Intelligence, AI, and Generative Artificial Intelligence, Gen AI, refer to the simulation of human intelligence processes by machines and computer systems. This emerging technology encompasses computer programs that can do language translation, chatbots that simulate human conversation, algorithm-based recommendation systems that analyze user preferences to recommend movies, music, and other media, and virtual assistants like Siri and Alexa, as well as other new programs and innovations. Over the last decade, the technology has rapidly evolved to be widely used across industries. Massachusetts has the opportunity to be a global leader in applied AI, but it's going to take us bringing together the brightest minds in tech, business, education, healthcare, and government. That's exactly what this task force will do, Healy said in a statement. Members of the task force will collaborate on strategies that keep us ahead of the curve 
by leveraging AI and Gen AI technology, which will bring significant benefits to our economy and communities across the state. The governor will seek $100 million in her upcoming economic development legislation to create an applied AI hub in Massachusetts in an effort to make the state more attractive for the burgeoning AI industry. The funding would be used for a capital grant program to support the adoption of AI in public policy applications and to contribute to the state's technology sectors, including life sciences, healthcare, financial service, advanced manufacturing, robotics, and education. The fund would focus on capital expenses related to the incubation of AI firms and the development of AI software and hardware technology. We have the conditions in place here in Massachusetts to cement our standing as the hub of AI and emerging technology in the future, Secretary of Technology Services and Security Jason Snyder said. Today's executive order recognizes the urgent need for the state to engage with AI now, with the understanding that we do our best work together with state policy leaders, the innovation industry, and higher education all at the table. We're working on projects that capitalize on this rich ecosystem to move our entire state forward. The task force will consist of 25 people representing members of the business community, higher education institutions, and state and local governments. The secretaries of the Executive Office of Economic Development and the Executive Office of Technology, Services, and Security will serve as co-chairs. Vice President and Chief Information Officer at UMass, Michael Milligan, and Boston Chief Information Officer, Santiago Garces, will serve as co-chairs, representing higher education and local government. In addition, the administration announced a partnership with Northeastern University called Innovate MA to leverage the use of AI across state governments. Northeastern students have started helping the state implement AI through projects such as creating a tool for MassHealth call center staff to more efficiently navigate laws and regulations for customer support, helping MassDOT's highway division engineers to navigate the large quantity of standard operating procedures governing highway projects, creating a tool for the riders of the MBTA ride service to better understand how to access services and predicting grant program eligibility for entities applying for grants from the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, according to Healy's office. Steve Kadish, the former Chief of Staff to Governor Charlie Baker and Northeastern University Chief Operating Officer, was spotted on Beacon Hill giving a tour of the State House to students from the university on Wednesday. Bull in the news. Chiefs Kelsey gets first producer credit on SXSW movie. Travis Kelsey is already making moves in Hollywood. The Super Bowl champ has his first executive producer credit on a new film that will have its world premiere in March at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. My Dead Friend Zoe is described as a darkly comedic drama about a U.S. Army veteran the dead best friend she can't let go, and her estranged grandfather. The film stars Ed Harris, Sinequa Martin-Green, and Natalie Morales, who are all credited as executive producers alongside Kelsey. 
directed and co-written by Kyle Hausman-Stokes, My Dead Friend Zoe will debut on March 9th at the festival. It does not yet have a distributor in place for wider release. Kelsey, whose high-profile romance with Taylor Swift has sparked a frenzy, has hinted about plans to dip his toes into entertainment following his Saturday Night Live appearance last year. Last week, before the Super Bowl, he told the Los Angeles Times that he's been focused on football, but that there's definitely Hollywood talks out there. He said that, personally, his preferred genre is comedy. I'm comedy all the way, he said. I just like to have a fun time and make people laugh. Falmouth Barnstable Play for Tommy's Place by Andre Sims of the Case Cod Times. Two-year-old Eli's journey to center ice at Falmouth Ice Arena, alongside his eight-year-old brother Sam and his mother, Danielle LaPresta, started long before they left for the rink. Eli was diagnosed with a brain tumor before he had even reached his first birthday. Suddenly, he was fighting a battle he couldn't even comprehend, with Mom and Sam right by his side. For just over a year, the family adhered to a six-weeks-on, two-weeks-off chemotherapy regimen, an arduous, exhausting process that affected all involved. However, this week, it's been the last thing on their minds. That's thanks to a local Falmouth organization called Tommy's Place. Founded by Tim O'Connell in 2021, Tommy's Place gives free vacations to the families of kids fighting cancer, providing a chance for them to get a much-needed breather. One family at a time, along with their extended family and friends, get to come one week, O'Connell said. They can sleep up to 18 per night in each house. Thanks to HGTV, the Boston Bruins, the community, and more, hundreds of families have been hosted in their locations in Falmouth and Centerville. This year, Tommy's Place will host 104 families between their two properties. Families are selected based on a lottery system after being referred from one of 11 hospitals in New England. But the La Presta's trip came about in a slightly different fashion. We were contacted last Friday night that there was a last-minute cancellation, she said. Tommy's Place asked if we would like to step in. Fortunately, the Laprestas live in Linfield. They made it out and, as part of their trip, got to be a part of an endowment hockey game between the Falmouth and Barnstable boys hockey teams on Wednesday. The game is the brainchild of Falmouth head coach Paul Moore. He was the one who reached out to O'Connell to get the ball in motion. I've been thinking about it for a couple of years, Moore said. Tommy's place has a special place in everyone's heart. It's the second edition of the game played between the two longtime rivals. The Clippers won 5-4 courtesy of a Charlie Bardellis goal with just under nine seconds remaining. But on this day, they were both playing for something more. It's been awesome, Barnstable head coach Peter Nugnes said. It was a different atmosphere here. It was all about the kids. It wasn't about Barnstable and Falmouth. It was about Tommy's place. Anyone who came to the game could bid on items like a bouquet of scratcher tickets, gift cards, one of each of the officially licensed Batman and Joker themed sweaters the players wore, and more, with all proceeds and donations benefiting Tommy's place. The Clippers had also been blasting a QR code on social media for weeks, and people were able to donate via the live stream of the game. 
Cash donations at the game raised $3,600 for Tommy's Place, and organizers are still awaiting the totals from digital options in which donors gave through a QR code. O'Connell said those donations are critical to the success and longevity of the organization. Anytime we get this community support, that's the biggest thing that we rely on, he said. That's really the engine that keeps Tommy's Place going. It allows families like the Laprestas to have experiences like they did. Danielle Lapresta said she was overwhelmed being with her children on the ice. I will admit I got a little teary-eyed, she said. It was the family's first ever hockey game, and she said they immediately felt the love and support of the community. It's been a lot of fun. We've been welcomed with open arms, and the boys are having a blast, Danielle Lapresta said. She calls Eli her warrior, but the truth is they're all superheroes, as is anyone who's going through or knows someone with cancer, fitting on a night with Batman and Joker-themed sweaters. Anyone that wishes to donate their time or money to Tommy's Place can find more information on their website. We've reached the halfway point of today's broadcast, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our program, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary today is for Herbert Wenzel, Dateline, Mashpee. Herbert William Bill Wenzel died peacefully at home with his family by his side on February 9th at the age of 93. Bill is survived by his children, grandchildren, and 10 great-grandchildren. In addition to his family, his lifelong friend, Mary Lou Gazer, who has been his companion for the last several years. He is preceded in death by his beloved wife, Beverly Ann Stuck Wenzel, after 65 years of marriage, his parents, Frida and Henry Wenzel, and Beverly's family. Bill was born in Boston on December 20, 1930, to German immigrants, Frida and Henry Wenzel. He graduated from Boston English High School in 1948. After meeting Beverly when they were 15 years old, he married his high school sweetheart in 1952. He was stationed in Europe with the U.S. Army in 1953, and we thank him for that service. And he lived in Livorno, Italy for two years where they, were wel where they welcomed their first child. They returned to the U.S. and purchased their first home in Dedham, where they raised their three children. Together with partners, he started Wemco Machine and purchased Grandview Campground in Rochester, New Hampshire. He also started a construction company where he and his partners built custom homes on Cape Cod, one of which he lived in until the time of his passing. His family will always remember him as a strong, generous, supportive, and loving man. Bill was an active outdoorsman from the time he was young. His passion for fishing, hunting, canoeing, and travel brought his family and friends on many adventures throughout his life. Visiting hours and memorial service will be held at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on Route 151 in Mashpee. Visiting hours will begin at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 24th, followed by a memorial service at noon. All are welcome to attend a Celebration of Life reception at the Flying Bridge Restaurant in Falmouth. Burial will be private in the Massachusetts National Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, please send donations in Bill's name to any charity of your choosing. He believed in helping all in need. 
The Wenzel family would like to thank the VNA Hospice of Cape Cod, who provided them with guidance and support during his last weeks of life. Jeffrey Richard Sadowski, Dateline McLean. Jeffrey Richard Sadowski, aged 47, passed away on February 8th in McLean, Virginia. He was the husband of Anastasia Sadowski. Born in Plymouth, he was active in all sports growing up. His love had no bounds for baseball, especially the Ketuit Ketteliers of the Cape Cod Baseball League and the Boston Red Sox. He graduated from Northeastern University with honors, where he was an editor of the Northeastern News, the student newspaper. Post-graduation, he worked in the Boston office of Congressman Edward J. Markey, who at the time was the United States Representative for Massachusetts 7th Con Congressional District. He was a speechwriter, researcher, and pollster for Congressman Markey's re-election campaigns. He left Congressman Markey's office in 2001, two months before the attacks of September 11th, and joined the State Department. As a result, his work took him all across the globe, his most favorite being Miami and South America. He thoroughly loved his career. Besides his wife, he is survived by his father, Richard, and brother, Todd. His mother, Janice, passed away in 2004. Services are private. Memorial donations may be made to the charity of one's choice. Janet Haggerty Duggan. Dateline, West Harwich. Janet Haggerty Duggan of West Harwich, formerly of Framingham, passed peacefully, surrounded by her loving family, on February 11th. Janet was born in Cambridge on December 2nd, 1935, to Lillian and Eugene Haggerty, and raised on Wynne Street in Belmont. She graduated from Marycliffe High School and Mount Auburn School of Nursing. She was the oldest of three, predeceased by Eugene Gino and survived by Frederick Fred Haggerty and his wife Lois. Devoted wife of the late Mortimer P. Duggan for 52 years, they raised their family of four in Framingham. She is survived by many family members, including three great-grandchildren with a fourth on the way. Janet had a long fulfilling career as a geriatric nurse notably at St. Patrick's Manor and Weston Manor. She spent her whole life caring for others, both professionally as a nurse and as a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. After many years of vacationing in Wellfleet, Truro, and Provincetown with her family, she retired to West Harwich. She spent years sharing her love for Pleasant Road Beach and, of course, her brother Gino's jug band with her 10 grandkids. She kept up with her busy family's lives with her app, also known as Facebook. Relatives and friends are invited to attend her funeral mass on Tuesday, February 20th at St. Joseph's Parish in Belmont at 10 a.m., followed by burial at Belmont Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, please donate to a charity of your choice in her honor. Please visit DeVito Funeral Home's website to view an online guest book. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Husband is Furious About Daughter's Secret Marriage. Dear Carolyn, my daughter was secretly married over a year ago. She informed me afterward, then told me not to tell my husband, her father, because of incidents where he shared private information with others. 
I told our daughter three times that I'm not comfortable keeping this secret from her father. She said she isn't either, but it needs to be that way for now. Finally, she told my husband and told him I already knew. He is extremely angry with me and says I have damaged our relationship. What should I have done? Signed, Caught in the Middle. Dear Caught in the Middle, Your daughter dumped only bad options in your lap. You either lied to your husband or betrayed your daughter. Ugh. You asked about should, so... When that happens, it's best to stand firm that she's asking too much of you. Say you love her and respect her right to decide for herself what is best for her relationship with her dad. However, attaching secrecy strings to her news crosses a line into your relationship with her dad, and that's not fair. Fair would be to withhold from you both or tell you both, no parent splitting. When it's obviously too late for that, you've heard the news, the next step is to say you won't keep a secret indefinitely. That grants her some time to organize herself and then tell her dad. This is along the lines of what you did, and it's defensible, though a year is pushing it. If we're talking strictly about marriage health, then it would be your responsibility to say you won't keep secrets from your husband. The person with the secret could tell him herself today, or by this time next week, or some other clear, tight interval. But after that, you're telling. Reasonable choices. But I believe this secret in this family is more complicated, and not just because you're being asked to choose between child and spouse. There's also obvious dysfunction involved when a daughter doesn't trust a parent to know she got married. Whether the underlying problem is entirely with her or entirely with her dad, or some combination of the two, plus you, is something I can't possibly tell from here. But whatever the backstory is, that plainly informed your choice. I put myself in your husband's position, and I hope, my goodness I hope, that my first reaction would be to look inward, to ask myself why my grown daughter felt she couldn't tell me she got married. And I'd be asking myself, I hope, what I can do to build healthier relationships. I hope I'd be asking you how we ended up in this awful place and what I did specifically to get us here. I really, really hope I'd do all these things before I tore into you and then still not tear into you because adults disagree civilly instead. As awful as I'd feel mentally rewinding through this year-long lie of omission, it would still be my responsibility to ask what led you to decide this was your best option. I could disagree with your reasoning, vehemently even, but not before I made a real effort to understand what it actually was. Antique glass lost in Pearpoint fire makes for unique artisan jewelry. By Matthew Ferreira of the Standard Times. Dateline, New Bedford. It's been almost 60 years since the historic Pearpoint glass mill fire of 1965 on Prospect Street in New Bedford. And while a number of New Bedford's old industrial mills still stand as reminders of a bygone era, Pearpoint, which dubs itself America's oldest glass company, left traces of its presence in other ways. One way was through artfully finished pieces, all hand-blown and one-of-a-kind, that have made their way into museum displays and private collections throughout the country. 
Another way was through the multitude of glass fragments and shards of all shapes, sizes, and colors spread about bountifully during the explosive fire, says Beth Kirk, owner of Kirk Studio and the metalsmith shop in New Bedford. Some of it was from finished pieces. Some was unfinished. Some pieces you can tell were in the furnace at the time, Kirk said, pointing out the differences of some of the yet-to-be-used pieces of glass she makes into the jewelry and art pieces sold at her newly opened shop at Kilburn Mill. If you know what you're looking at, every little piece tells a story. Kirk, a former longtime New Bedford resident currently living in Fall River, has been using the largely disregarded Pearpoint fragments in her work since 2020, when the COVID pandemic suddenly granted her enough free time to add some artful new skills to her repertoire but she had already been putting her creativity to work since childhood. I started making things when I was five. I was making things out of toothpicks, Kirk said. Then I went into clay and then jewelry and then stained glass and eventually back to metals. They're my favorite. While majoring in fine arts, Kirk says she was taught creating something attractive is one thing. Creating something special is another. It's something she's taken to heart ever since, as evidenced through her current work, which, aside from Pearpoint glass pieces, includes items crafted out of anything, from antique marbles to World War II-era steel pennies. When I went to art school, they asked what I wanted to make, and I said, beautiful things. They said, that's not enough. And now I know what they meant. It's got to be beautiful and historic, beautiful and funny, something other than just beautiful, Kirk said, noting she's always got her eyes open for good finds she can work with. Pearpoint's New Bedford story ended in buried treasure. The New Hampshire native says working with Pearpoint glass pieces, a main staple of her business, reflects the latest set of skills she's mastered thanks to a sizable supply of broken chunks and shards indicative of Pearpoint's glassmaking and blowing processes that had been buried in the area following the fire. And not everything that was buried behind Pearpoint was from the fire. Some of it was from the 1890s, 1900s, Kirk said, mentioning the two large jars she purchased in 2019 from a private Pearpoint dealer that had been recovered from someone's basement. Clues that hint at certain steps in the process can be seen in pieces Kirk has, she said noting she often takes care to preserve those subtle features in her finished work. Sometimes I save the pipe mark, where the pipe came off of the glass when it was being blown, she said, pointing out a protrusion on one of her pendants, which she'd worked into its design. Another piece of glass, a thick chunk yet to be cut, carved, or polished, had inconsistencies in shape and texture that show what was in the mix midst of being melted in a furnace when that process was interrupted, likely by the fire, Kirk said. But being that broken Pearpoint fragments like the ones she works with aren't worth much money, Kirk said the job of cutting them into right-sized pieces wasn't profitable enough for craftsmen accustomed to cutting higher-value materials. So she had to learn the process herself through research and trial and error. The way I make my work it takes me a long time, but it's perfect, Kirk said. I cut pieces with a tile cutter. Then I carve it with diamond bits into the shape I want in water so it doesn't crack. And then I use nine different wet and dry sandpapers to polish it, 
from 100 grit up to 3,000, and then I set it. Typically, Kirk says, her pairpoint jewelry pieces are set in high-grade argentium silver, which is purer than more common sterling varieties. It's a little whiter in color, and it doesn't tarnish as easily, she said. All in all, Kirk said a single piece, such as a ring or pendant, averages about 14 hours to make. What's special about pearpoint glass? Aside from the fact it came from such an important source in the histories of both glassmaking and the city of New Bedford, Kirk says just a quick glance is enough to tell someone they're looking at something special. One of the biggest differences between the antique glass made using the old pearpoint methods and modern glass, Kirk said, is that many pearpoint glass varieties contained heavy metals like lead and uranium, which contributed to their distinct look. While it's difficult to explain the visual effect, Kirk describes it as creating a smooth, yummy color. The lead added depth to the color. Even if it was clear, it was a rich, smooth clear, she said. Without lead, it becomes more see-through and less luscious, I'd say. Varieties containing uranium will glow neon under ultraviolet light, Kirk said. So she keeps some UV flashlights handy at her shop to demonstrate this. Kirk says she's been advised glass items containing such materials are generally safe to handle, but should not be ingested. New shop at Kilburn Mill marks a new adventure. Perhaps it's fitting that items that originated in one of New Bedford's old mills are now being sold at another that's still standing. Now about a month in after opening her and her husband Larry's brick and mortar location at Kilburn Mill, named Metalsmith and located within the marketplace area on the second floor, Kirk says she's been excited to see her vision of a physical retail shop come together. We've been doing a lot of work going in and making it look nice, she said, noting her husband's nautical stained glass work is also for sale there. Our studio where we make everything is right around in back of the mill, so it makes it easy. A labor of love. Understanding that there are cheaper, easier materials to work with that would turn a larger profit in less time, Kirk says she has no intent on stopping her pearpoint gem-making craft. I'm not going to stop making pearpoint, she said, though noting she also creates items from other materials, like semi-precious stones, to take a break from the labor intensiveness of antique glass. It's not about the money. I love doing it, and there are people who do appreciate the history and all the work that went into it. To browse some of her items online, visit the Kirk Studio Facebook page. Kirk's Metalsmith Shop on Kilburn Mill, second floor inside the marketplace, is open Saturdays and Sundays from 10 to 4. Sienna in Mashpee Commons gets a month-long visit from Italy-based Cook by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Mashpee. If the weekend specials at Mashpee Restaurant Siena have been tasting, tasting even more authentically Italian than usual for the past month, it's likely because Vittoria Tassoni has been working part-time in the kitchen. This weekend, starting Friday, is the last chance to taste her food at the Mashpee Commons eatery. The food blogger and chef from Tarquinia, an ancient Etruscan city not far from Rome, 
Tassoni returns to Italy on Wednesday, February 21st, after a month of cooking a couple of days a week at the restaurant, studying English, and teaching home cooking classes at a friend's house where she is staying in Katuit. Me and her, although we can't communicate well, not a lot is lost in translation with the food, said Nicholas Jankowski, Siena's executive chef for 19 years. Chicken parmesan is not an Italian thing. But when Italian cooking and Italian-American cooking simmer side by side on the stove, some differences can make them feel an ocean apart. They don't have chicken parmesan. It's not an Italian thing. But it's so popular here that if I took it off the menu, I would have to close the doors, Jankowski said of Siena's 250-seat space. With the Google Translator queued on to Sony's phone, a little conversation is possible. But she lit up in agreement when I suggested emailing questions to her. I have worked in medium-sized restaurants before where the line is prepared every morning, Tassoni wrote in an email. But in Italy, the pasta is cooked at the moment it's needed, the boiling water is always ready, and the pasta is thrown in with the order. In Italy, she said, the seasonality of ingredients is more evident. Summer produce won't be available in winter, for example. The variety of rice comes into play, with different risottos calling for different types of rice. Jankowski said many Cape customers found the risotto a little crunchy for their American palates, but we made it work and just cooked it a little longer, he said. Sienna's chef said the Italian guest wanted to use a lot more anchovies, but Americans tend to shy away from the pungent, oily fish that is a big part of Italy's mostly Mediterranean diet. Collecting Italian Recipes from Elders in Tosoni's Village Tassoni was gracious about hosting visitors in Siena's narrow prep kitchen, where she was preparing a slightly sweetened pasta dough from scratch, pressing it so thin you could nearly see through it, and then frying it in ribbons for Roman carnival frappe. Hot and liberally doused with powdered sugar, the dessert nearly melts in your mouth. Tassoni, age 62, learned to cook beginning with an omelet while visiting her grandmother on weekends when she was 10. Then she passed away, and because she couldn't read and write, she didn't leave me the written recipes. So I collected recipes from the elders of the village, together with a friend, for seven years. Out of this work came a recipe book we published in honor of our grandparents, titled Il Marando. Tassoni spent most of her career as an operating room nurse in her town's hospital and was head nurse of the department. While I was still working as a nurse, I completed a master's degree in gastronomic culture, and two years before retirement, I took my second degree in hotel school to become a chef. I became a food blogger with the Italian Association of Food Bloggers, the AIFB, and Lady Chef of the Italian Federation of Chefs, FIC. I also run my own home-based cooking school called Il Prezzomolino, Tassoni came to study English after one of her students, who has houses in Tarquinia and Kutuit, invited her and set up the restaurant experience, as well as asking Tassoni to teach a few home classes for her friends. Tassoni said she learned to speak some French during a similar adventure in France. Tassoni shares her experiences on social media with a blog and website at vittoriaincucina.it and online on her Instagram page.
Support the Homeless During a Fitness Fundraiser at Rocky's Gym by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Rocky's Gym in East Falmouth and Inspiration is Everywhere are teaming up for Home is Where the Heart Is, an all-day fitness fundraiser for people experiencing homelessness on Sunday, February 18th at the gym. It's a way for people in the community to get involved and put sort of a human face on the issue. Samantha Bauer, director of Inspiration is Everywhere, said, We're going to have homeless people coming in for services, clothing, and donations. I think a lot of people are used to hearing about statistics and numbers, but it's hard when you're just scrolling through Facebook posts to really understand the depth of what it means, that these are actual people. The event will feature multiple fitness competitions, such as sit-up competition and push-up competition, a donation drive for goods, clothing items such as winter coats, gloves, and hats, and gift cards, a pop-up thrift shop, and a fundraiser freeze-out raffle where volunteers will be outside collecting donations to meet their goal. If we end up having to be outside overnight, we're going to be there, Bauer said. We're going to be there until we reach our $1,000 raffle goal. Pledges for the fitness competition will be taken until the 18th. Pledge sheets can be picked up from Rocky's Gym during business hours. Gift cards for Mobile Munchies, a local food vendor, will be available for purchase. Each gift card purchased provides a free hot meal to a person in need. Gift cards will be available for pickup at Rocky's Gym. They say everyone's about three paychecks away from becoming homeless. And we've heard a lot of stories about people who are living normal lives and then some sort of tragedy or disaster happens. They get a couple payments behind in their rent and before they know it, they've got nowhere to live, Bauer said. In a world with eight billion people, for someone to feel alone and like they have nowhere to turn is a horrifying thought. Home is Where the Heart Is takes place from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday the 18th at Rocky's Gym on East Falmouth Highway in East Falmouth. Rocky's is open from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. weekdays and 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekends. For more information about Inspiration is Everywhere, visit their website. What's the future of conversation on Cape Cod? Find out at a talk by Mark Robinson. With 14% of the Cape's land still developable, what will happen to it? In his presentation, A History and a Future for Land Conservation on Cape Cod, Mark Robinson of Katuit, director of the Compact of Cape Cod Conservation Trusts, We'll dive into the history and anticipated 21st century trends for undevelopment and eco-restoration. The presentation will take place at 2 p.m. Friday the 16th at Katuit Library on Main Street in Katuit, and is presented in part with the Barnstable Land Trust and Katuit Library. 13 Moons, a Wampanoag History Lecture with Darius Coombs. Learn about the history of the Wampanoag tribe with Darius Coombs, cultural outreach coordinator for the tribe, during 13 Moons, a lecture spanning over 12,000 years of the Wampanoag in Massachusetts. The lecture begins at 11 a.m. on Saturday the 17th and is free to attend. To register or for more information, contact Amy Wolf at awolf@clamsnet.org or call the library. The Osterville Village Library is located at 43 Wiano Avenue in Osterville.
Daily Life, Tragic Death, and Cape Nature, the themes of January's poems, by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. With a new year comes new poetry. For January, our chosen poets ran the gamut of subject manner. In Good Morning Shoppers, Liz Cabot depicts a trip to the grocery store, blinded by the fluorescent lights and throwing items into the metal cart only to find salvation on the outside of the store. Maddie Holden, an MFA poetry candidate at Queens College, shows off her talent in From Me, the Moon, a poem playing on Lav's song of the same name to describe the ebb and flow of the Cape Cod Flats. Kate Grozier reminds us of the tragedy of the Lady of the Dunes, penning a poem about the day Ruth Marie Terry's body was identified after decades. Each poem connects to the Cape but resonates with a different aspect of its identity, showing the beauty and tragedy within the sand and waves. Here is Maddie Holden's poem. Maddie says she wrote this poem for an assignment during her senior year at UVM. When asked to write about a natural phenomenon, she thought of the Cape Cod Flats. From me, the moon won Maddie Holden. The June breeze off the bay tickles my arms, and the six o'clock sun illuminates my already golden skin, now covered in shiny scales, and warms the parts of me people say don't exist. The Cape Cod flats go on for miles, and the strain in my calves is subtle but ever-present. My pace is brisk. It's 20 minutes to dead low, and I want to find the perfect spot. I don't know where I'm going, only the direction, out. I tiptoe through tide pools, teeming with sea life, avoiding the burrowing Jonah crab and the belching Wellfleet oyster. I lay down on a sandbar and feel the grooves in the small of my back. I soften to them. Time passes. The water rises. The waves lapping on the shore tell an age-old love story between the sun and the moon. The creatures acknowledge me and go about their business. They always will. I've watched this place erode and reinvent every year since I was five. Perhaps I learned it from them. Soon enough, I am floating toward the fleeting creamsicle sun, becoming short of breath with each inch it disappears below the horizon line and into the sea. Night falls and white light dances on the ocean floor. I am still here, lying on my back, ears submerged, deaf to the world above, listening for an answer to a question asked long ago. Is the moon still in love with the sun? That's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.